This episode of Drive is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation, and we pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. I'm Leila McKinnon, and welcome to Drive, a podcast about driven women delivering in their chosen fields in partnership with Uber Eats for a second year. Each week, I speak to strong and passionate women who are leading their lives their way. I've been a journalist for nearly 30 years, and I've interviewed some of the biggest celebrities in the world. But along the way, I've discovered that the most interesting stories often come from people who we've never or very rarely heard from before. To hear her speak, you would never expect Ali Watson, CEO and founder of Code Like a Girl, to be the disruptor that she is. Ali went into the very white male-dominated world of IT and quietly set about changing it and empowering other women and making it more accessible to people without power or privilege. She's a quiet revolutionary. Ali, welcome to Drive. Ali, thank you for speaking to us. I'm just going to launch right in and let you know how ignorant I am. What is a back-end developer? So when it comes to websites, websites are sort of, they have a front-end and they have a back-end. So you'll sometimes browse the net, go to a website and you'll see links and you'll see images and Sometimes there's not really much to a website. We call that brochureware, sort of brochure websites where it doesn't do anything too complicated. But then you go to websites like Facebook where it sort of saves information, posts information, dynamically loads it and things. So you can tell there's something there's something sort of smart going on in the back end of, of the website. So the back end is where all the data is pulled and manipulated and calculated and sent back to the front end. So... Um, yeah, that's what a back-end engineer does. They they help uh, communicate with the front end, um, so everything you sort of see in um, that interface, and then help do all the sort of logistics and logic and database stuff in the back end. So hopefully that hopefully that answers your question of, of what a back-end engineer is. That clears it up. I'm not sure I'd be able to explain it to anybody else, but um, <laughs> it, it does help. Ali, you started out um, looking at creative industries and... I was wondering how you ended up in STEM and in the industry that you're in, but I guess it is creative, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Um, and it's and sometimes people, you know, they don't really connect those two together, and it's usually just because of you know maybe stereotypes they have about coders and and what they do and that lack of exposure to the to the work itself. But it is a very creative field. Um, so for those that don't know, I'm an art school reject. Art school was like my first choice and um, got rejected from every art school in the country, which was Scotland, if you can't tell from my accent. And computer science was my plan B after countless, yep, countless rejections and heartbreak. Um, You are a great loss to the art world. I just want to say that. (laughs) Oh, thanks, Leela. (laughs) Well, I've been able to apply a lot of my creativity, both in the craft of coding. Coding itself is extremely about problem solving. And there's real similarities in terms of design versus coding. It's you've got limitations, you've got problems to solve, restrictions. And that's kind of the space I love to work in. I, I kind of love and it's actually very complimentary to now my new career or my current career which is entrepreneurship which again is very 
it's like creative problem solving. You've you've got these restrictions or something you have to solve and you just have to like push the boundaries and think of solutions to that. And it's very similar to code and even even the craft of code, it's it's a beautiful art in itself, you know, keeping it clean, keeping it organized, how you you build solutions like that are yeah, like boundary pushing is is kind of what sets good programmers apart from the kind of average programmers. So it's a really creative field and I I've been able to work in creative agencies and, and digital agencies and, and work, you know, hand in hand with designers and artists and bring their beautiful artwork to life. And I've really enjoyed being a developer and, and being the technical side of that project, even though, you know, my first career ambition was to be the artist, was to be the designer. I think having a passion and having a respect for that craft has actually made me a better developer to work with and a better developer who the artists and designers really enjoy working with because, you know, I appreciate every pixel that has went into their their artwork. And as a person has to translate that to code, you know, I, I know the care that they've taken and I, I sort of do the same in my job as I, I make sure that, that that final product, that final website, that final piece of software is their vision and what they wanted to create um, artistically. Ali, where did this vision that we have of this kind of wonky, geeky, male coder or, or STEM professional come from, do you think? And how wrong is it? It probably stems back maybe from like the 60s. So when, when computers were first invented, women were actually a lot of the time the software engineers and men were quite heavily in the hardware. But um, it really started to take off and the, the industry was starting to boom and they needed a really big recruitment drive. So, you know, this was, God, it was probably like 60s going into the 70s. And what happened is they brought in, they brought in like a psychologist to try and figure out what makes a perfect programmer. And back in those days, you know, gender beliefs and stereotypes were worse than they are today. You know, we're, we're finally progressing as a society and debunking a lot of this stuff. But back in the day, they decided that, you know, men like objects, men don't like talking to people, men make great programmers. Um, and so there was this shift when they had to recruit a lot of people to become the computer software engineers and the programmers. And so this big recruitment drive was aimed at men. And then suddenly the ad campaigns, the marketing for the first personal computer or the sort of consoles, there was this huge agenda in marketing towards men. And it really sort of took any role that women played in that industry just completely out. Um, and so we saw that really early on, this stereotype that just rose, this white nerd stereotype. And, and you, even when you look back on the ads from these magazines or even like old school TV ads, you can kind of see how marketing and branding played a really, really large part in convincing everybody what makes a great programmer or who these technologies were built for. And so it's only now, even in the last decade, that a movement has grown to, to show and debunk that myth, to show that, no, 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 this is not an innate talent that men have. This is not something that they are made for. It's so destructive, not only for the women with great brains and great ideas and 
excellent creativity for that kind of work. It denied them the opportunities, but it also imprisons men in that cage, doesn't it, too? Because think of all the men who have been lost to the humanities, to speaking, to all the things that they got told they weren't good at. I couldn't agree more with you, Leila. I think the, those stereotypes, um, those negative stereotypes, they go against, you know, if I was a man and someone was telling me, you know, you like objects, you don't like people, it's putting people in a box. And, you know, I think in this day and age, we know that how fluid our personalities are, how um, different we are, and that is not restricted to our gender. Our gender barely means anything. And they must just pull this, these kind of ideas out of thin air because if you look at things like uh, women in World War II at Bletchley Park decoding or coding these incredibly complicated messages during the war or working on the space program as we saw in that, um, oh, is it Hidden Figures? Uh, mm-hmm. a book and movie. There was evidence right in front of everybody's noses that there were many, many women indeed who were good at this kind of thing. Good despite the odds as well. I mean, we, we think about that culture and what it would have been like for those women to be able to pursue those interests, to pursue that study. It, it's so impressive that they even managed to cut through and even be recognised at that time. Um, I think there'll be many cases of women, and, and again, like the hidden figures that are coming out now of, oh yeah, these women should be recognised for their contributions. I think it's so remarkable and amazing that we have role models that date back as early as that, given the circumstances of what society was like and what women should have been doing and, and their place, you know, their place in society. We still had these brilliant minds cut through that and, and still be role models for us today, I think is incredible. I think, too, it must just start incredibly early because, you know, I was brought up to be a feminist and and to say I I can do whatever I like. But I was actually quite good at at problem solving and at at mathematics, but I never even considered it. And why not? It must just be the feedback that you get or the direction that you see others going in. There must be so much unconscious bias at a very young age. Yeah, I think it starts really young. There was a study, I think it was the University of Illinois, did a study with, you know, five to seven-year-olds. And they had discovered that from the age of six onwards, young girls start not to believe in their own intelligence. They start to believe that intelligence is a male trait. And um, yeah. this sometimes can carry on with, with age. And I think you're right. I think it's... I think it's and then they get subliminal. married and they find out it's not true. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And, um, and and that's it. It's, it's very subliminal. It's very these messages from the magazines to the toys to the TV shows, the actresses, the the roles that they play. You know, there was a really fascinating theory. It was the Scully effect, where during the time of the X Files, now it's a really popular um, show where the, one of the, the main characters, the protagonist, and, and X-Files was this woman. Mm, the um, early 90s, she was, wasn't it? Yeah, she was yeah. super smart. <laughs> she was super smart. Um, and she was, a, she was a skeptic. She didn't really, she didn't want to believe. <laughs> but um, there was a spike in women applying for STEM and STEM degrees. And I think that just shows you, particularly in westernised countries, where we want to be like what we see on the TV. The role models really impact us. And I think we have that that sort of freedom of choice of what we want to do when we grow up. And I think I was the same. I grew up in a house full of women 
didn't have any engineers in my family. Technology was never something I imagined myself in as a young age. I didn't have any speakers come to the school. All of my teachers were men in the computing classes. And it is just that thing of if you can't see it, you can't be it. And I really do think there's a lot of truth to that because you have to see yourself in these roles and we're just not exposed to it. And there's just no agenda there whatsoever. Whereas I do, I am hopeful and I am optimistic that even in the last 10 years, we have seen incredible books and incredible, you know, strives in both the, the film industry, even the animation industry. You've seen all these amazing characters. I'm even thinking of like Marvel, Black Panther, what an amazing movie that was and how strong and intelligent the female cast were in that movie. And I'm I'm really hopeful that these these small tweaks that we make, these these steps that we make about showing what women are in these movies and these ads will change the next generation of girls growing up that they will believe in their intelligence, that science and tech and other sort of STEM fields will not be something they can't see themselves in. The opportunities are, are absolutely there for them. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back after a message from our partner, Uber Eats. Uber Eats is proud to support Feed Appeal, who are dedicated to improving the lives of people experiencing hunger or food insecurity. The work of Feed Appeal and their partner charities has always been crucial in providing meals for struggling Australians. But since COVID-19, there has been a sharp increase in food relief requests, with many Aussies reaching out to ask for help for the first time in their lives. Throughout the pandemic, Feed Appeal have worked incredibly hard to maintain their vital services and innovate new ways to help those in need. And as part of the ongoing partnership between Uber Eats and Feed Appeal, more than 760,000 meals have been delivered to vulnerable households. If you're looking for help or know someone in your community who is, please reach out to one of Feed Appeal's partner charities in your state at feedappeal.org.au. Welcome back to Drive, where my guest today is Ali Watson. Now, with Code Like a Girl, you've created an incredible support base, a networking centre for women in the industry, but you also provide courses for people. I'm thinking with COVID, with the job losses that we've seen in Australia and around the world. Is it too late for women to get into the industry or to learn to code, to get jobs? Absolutely not. Never too late. Um, I think the, the industry is certainly booming, but that's not going to end anytime soon. The trajectory that the technology industry is on, and I think COVID has only shown us the dependency of digital transformation, the dependency on automation and integrating technology into their businesses, it's it's growing. And Do, do you have um, students in their 40s and 50s taking up the courses? Yeah, we do. We actually have, um, we had a couple, a mother and daughter recently, which was really cute. Um, and it was actually the mother's idea to, to join the course and she roped her daughter in. Um, for that, you know, that sense of camaraderie and <laughs> doing it together. Um, we've had a lot of older women, which has been really wonderful to see and I think brings a, a really great energy to the cohorts that we bring in. So our online courses, we do them as a cohort. So community, like you said, Leela, is, has always been very core to what we do and it's it's usually why women reach out to Code Like a Girl because it can be quite isolating to learn to code or to be in a, an education environment that is male dominated, which often happens in, in university or in, in college or, or these coding boot camps. Often it's 
still male dominated. And so a lot of the women will come to us for that sense of community, that sense of, you know, friendship that they want to meet. Um, and I think it's a real diverse range that we've seen of, of ages, of cultural backgrounds, um, something that was really, really important to us when we were setting up the the business but also setting up every single product we ever create is how do we distribute privilege how do we make sure that we're not just feeding more white privilege into this system I mean coding if you look at the workforce is predominantly white and so that's a problem in itself and whilst we have decided to focus on gender diversity as an organization I think it's so important that intersectionality isn't an afterthought it needs to be part of this business and so we're a social enterprise for those that don't know what that is it's it, it really is creating a business model that can distribute that privilege and so with our coding courses we have we have scholarships available so for every four full paid students we put through a full tuition free scholar and that's enabled us a huge amount of diversity when it comes to age when it comes to cultural ethnicity backgrounds even learning disabilities and other disabilities it's been amazing to be able to build something that can be inclusive like that that's always been a kind of dream of mine when i've started this organization it wasn't just about getting more coders in the world which we definitely need you know we have a global shortage but it was making sure that there was that diversity that those technology workforces we didn't close our eyes and keep thinking of mark zuckerberg that when we closed our eyes we thought about you know a woman of color or a woman who may be from another sort of marginalized background it's just so important that we keep that as part of our our core agenda so i've loved that older women have joined the courses i think they bring like I said, just as an inspirational energy to, to others in the course, knowing that they are giving it a shot and there's no difference in terms of how quickly they pick up. I think it's really just about your own motivation. What's your self-motivation? You know, the homelessness rate of, of older women is increasing. Um, and so I think it's I think it's amazing, actually, that there's something out there that they can upskill or, or reskill and, and learn these kind of amazing in-demand skills at that age. Um, I think it gives them a real edge. No one should have to close their eyes and think of Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, that, is, <laughs> <laughs> that is, yeah, that is not good. Uh, a lot of women in a lot of industries have to work harder than anybody else to make an impact or to be taken seriously. When you were starting out in this industry, did you find that? Did you find a male would walk in and, and people would sit up and take notice, but you would not get the same chance? Absolutely. And, and Leela, not just when you're starting out, it is a continuous battle I felt as a woman in engineering with every single new company with every single new client with every single new team you felt a sense of having to prove yourself um, and I'll be honest some of this was some of it was internal some of it was like my own internal barriers and a lot of the time it was external I had a client that I met for the very first time and in a room full of people he didn't ask anyone else but he asked me to explain like to tell me my credentials you know, I had to tell him like what my background of study was. It was just like this disbelief and whether it was coming from a place of, I've never met a female engineer before and now you're taking over my project. <laughs> or uh, yeah, I really don't know, but I remember it distinctly. And I think that was it happening externally, what I felt internally a lot of the time, like, especially as a, a woman who is soft-spoken, who is bubbly, who, you know, I'm very, I'm very gentle and in, in, in my nature. And so I always, I always felt that wasn't the norm. And so people wouldn't take me 
as serious as you know the male engineers and often I felt I had to prove myself over and over and over again and I think that's a really common reason why many women leave this industry and so many of them are leaving midway through their career and I think it's an exhaustion of one I'm isolated and I'm and I miss having female peers I miss having that female friendship in my day-to-day life I miss coming to work as my full self sometimes I would have to you know really cut back on my personality really you know park some of it for after work or you know with my friends like I would have to come to work knowing that you know the conversations that I was having even on a social level weren't the conversations I necessarily always enjoyed having or wanting to have mm. you know I really I've, I've worked with women in the last three years of my life with code like a girl and it's the first time I've actually had a female dominated team and it is incredible to come to work and say girls it's the first day of my period and I am not on today yeah and can <laughs> and you imagine a, doing that in the early days no <laughs> Exactly. In my industry, you know, I came through, I I guess I started in the early 90s in broadcasting and television. And the women who had come before me had dressed like men and made a big effort of swearing Mm. all the time and being really tough. I came through somewhere in the middle of of sort of doing that, but gradually changing. And now I see the women coming through behind me who are being women who can be themselves. And it is interesting to see how working in an environment that has a different gender balance allows you to be yourself. Yeah, that is really interesting. And um, I, I have so many memories of, yeah, having to be a bit ashamed of my femininity. And I remember being at university and coming in one day with my Elle magazine and coffee in hand and you know, even the girls in the class, there was a few girls in the class, but even them, you know, scoffing at me and sort of poking fun at me for being, yeah, for being quite stereotypically a woman. And that was, these were my interests. This is who I am. Mm. I think they have progressed a lot in who they are. And I think knowing these people I'm, think, I'm thinking of, like I'm still good friends with them. And, and I reckon if they had had to go back to that scenario, they, they wouldn't scoff me for that. They wouldn't, you know, poke fun at me for that because I think they have changed and I think they've realised how important it is just to be your authentic self and to feel like you also have a right to be there and you also have a right to feel a sense of belonging. I think that was the biggest thing that I didn't have throughout my career is that that sense of belonging. I always felt this was someone else's world and I was I was an imposter in it. Uh, you know, yeah. do you, you should pat yourself on the back for that because... Oh, thanks, Lisa. Yeah, what, what an incredible thing to do to, to make the world the way it should be and the things that you're doing for diversity and, and for people with disabilities. Uh, absolutely incredible. Oh, I appreciate that, Leela. I'm so driven with it. I, I really am. And I think it's been now close to five, God, maybe even six years since, since we hosted that first ever networking event and people often ask me you know what it takes to build community and I think I think it's just a a real authentic drive to solve that problem that your community feels too like I'm on calls with with students at seven o'clock at night and I really love sharing my knowledge and experience with them and chatting to them about what they're building with their code or what they want to build with their code and I think to build that community you have to be genuinely 
up for the mission. You have to be genuine to that mission and, and really love it. And I think that's something I've learned about myself and doing this work. It's it's became honestly like feels like my life mission <laughs> was to to bring these women together and to connect them and build those friendships so that they can stay on, so that they can go into their careers and fulfill those ambitions without without having that isolation, without having those feelings like they didn't belong. You're very gentle and you are very softly spoken and with your beautiful accent, but you are a disruptor, aren't you? You've disrupted the industry in terms of, of gender and, and diversity to some extent. And, and now you want to go about changing the way that the hours are run. And that is so important for parents, whether it's mums or dads, to be able to have some kind of flexibility and work hours too. So that sounds like the way of the future. Would you class yourself as a disruptor? <laughs> yeah, I, w- I would say so. I think when you find something that you've firsthand experienced and you're really passionate about, it just uh, keeps you up at night when it's something that's an injustice. And I see so many women who are off put or don't believe in themselves. There's just an abundance of opportunity in technology. It sets you up for financial freedom. It sets you up for freedom of, of your career choice. I think technology skills as a as a skill set can open so much doors in terms of starting your own company, building your own products, or even just the world of business now is so tech focused that having that jargon, having that vocabulary, having those solutions, or at least the, the concept of creating them in your head is power. And I want more women with that power because I think that's when we all see like a catalyst of change. If we get more people with technical capabilities and more technical knowledge, the things they can unlock, the problems that they face personally that they can solve and bring to this industry excites the hell out of me. And I, I love being part of that change in a, a really tangible way to say, come learn to, to code with code like a girl, come meet an industry of opportunities and abundance. And yeah, I love playing a part in that, that bigger change that I would love to see. If women have a small business or, uh, you know, an online business or, you know, there's a lot of women going into those spaces because it fits into their lives. Would coding help them with those interests that they do have, that income? I think coding is probably a step that you might not want to take first. I think there's lots of avenues to go down before you go down the coding route. I think if you're thinking about something custom, proprietary, like, you know, if you really want to build something yourself and 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 do down that route then then coding is a great step for that but i think there's a few previous steps that you could take i think generally getting an idea of digital literacy understanding a lot of the jargon like what is a server what is the cloud how can apps be built there's a big movement called the no code movement which basically uses a lot of tools out there that people have built that means you can build websites without a single line of code. And when you're starting out, when you're a founder, when you're, you've got a concept, an idea, learning to code or getting a coder is a really expensive, time-consuming process. I think you have to have a, a motivation specifically to learn to code and, and just starting a business probably or proving a concept, I don't think is the prerequisite to learning to code, um, which is you know, I'm doing a terrible job selling my courses here. But <laughs> I think I think there's so many tools out there. 
HubSpot, Zapier. These are tools that you can like literally plug and play. They can create automation and set up admin tasks for you. Like there's lots of things out there that really don't require you to know how to code, but do require a bit of digital savviness. Um, and so, yeah, my, my first step would be to, to explore how do you do this without code? And if you're trying to build something that is quite proprietary, it is something that you'd want to patent, it is something very unique, then yeah, I think exploring coding would be a, another good step in that direction because it's all good and well using other people's platforms, but most of the time it comes with a cost and those costs scale along with your business. So if you've got a really great idea, I would say like prove it first as much as you can without code. And then once you've sort of proven your idea, have a think about how you can build it customly without building it on other people's services. Because I think that's when you can really scale. You can have that much more control over performance, how it, how it grows, like the product isn't tied to someone else's product. So you've got that freedom. And, and that's sort of the approach we've taken with a lot of our own stuff is, you know, yeah, we're not reinventing online education, but I don't want to build it on someone else's platform and have to pay them for every single student that comes into our program. We're a team of technologists, so let's build our own proprietary learning system. And that's been an awesome journey for us as engineers as well as learners because with every single student and their feedback, we can implement it, we can change the system, we can make it look the way we want it to look. And there's this great sense of control about the future. And I think that's where coding can be really powerful. But is it for everybody? Is it for every business owner? You know, arguably not, but I do think it teaches you a different way of thinking. It teaches you to feel safe in the world of technology because you you know that the possibilities are endless and that's, that's a great power to have. Yes, I think if women are made afraid or doubtful of their abilities with technology or people with disabilities or people from different ethnicities, it's also a way of holding people down, isn't it? If you, if you feel like you're yeah. afraid and that you won't be able to embrace technology... It's not going to be great for you into the future, is it? It's not. And then what happens as well is you become beholden to people who are technology savvy. Like I've seen it time and time again where people have built products and they're so scared to let go of developers or the engineer who built it from the beginning. And these people end up, you know, behaving badly in these organisations. They're like organisational terrorists who, you know, you come to work and you're like, oh God, I have to work with this person again. And they become so beholden to them because the tech lies with them whereas if they were empowered and felt unafraid of of the technology and unafraid of this I know this tech or I know this tech stack or I understand this language I understand you know who I need to build because a lot of the time I chat with I chat with a lot of female founders who are seeking tech founders this is something often I'll get emailed about introduced to people Ali I've got this lady she's got an amazing idea but she's not techie she needs a tech co-founder she's looking for a woman tech co-founder and I have to say to them well <laughs> join the big long queue yeah, yeah. <laughs> because um, honestly they're, they're just hard to find and yeah I, I really wish that you know I wish there was an easier access for them because they do have a lot of unique ideas I think the market is so untouched with you know female products female ideas problems to be solved yeah, I, I wish I could give everybody tech skills so that they didn't have that barrier because it is a barrier. It stops them from moving forward on their product ideas and startup ideas. And it's tough to not be able to help them directly and, and give them that very seasoned technologist that they're dreaming of, um, who's a woman. You've disrupted the industry in your stealthy way and I'm wondering where you're going to next with your stealth passion. 
Oh, that's a good question, Leila. I mean, we're we're still en route to, so for those that don't know, we have an internship programme that we've been running for two and a half years and we've now acquired about 31, 32 partners on board across Australia. So we're trying to really showcase that women from diverse backgrounds, not just your stereotypical educational computer science backgrounds, but women from all walks of life can gain these skills and hit the ground running in a tech job. So that's what we sort of formed two and a half years ago. And then last year we just launched online courses. So at the moment, those online courses are built for beginners. They're 10 weeks long. You can go from, you know, doing your Zoom calls and digital online banking to, you know, if you've got that savviness, you could learn to code. You don't need any other prerequisite. So they take it from the real beginnings. But what we're doing next is con- connecting those two. So come learn to code with Code Like a Girl. In a year's time, you'll get landed your dream job internship, paid paid internship. And the wonderful thing about education is it's flexible. It's completely flexible, which means you do not have to drop your job. It's a really accessible pricing as well. If you cannot afford it, there's an avenue of scholarship. So the dream for us is, is finishing the School of Code and connecting that with our internship. So that's the sort of next two-year goal, at least. It's exciting to think that those courses that you're offering now might be just what women out there need to take the next step in their lives because so many people have had so much disruption to their lives because of this pandemic and perhaps this is the start of something for them. Yeah, I I believe so. Last year we saw 80% of university dropouts were women over 25 and that to me says that women had a choice, family or study. Yeah. And that the traditional education routes do not cater to that. You know, they do not cater to the flexibility that women need. They do not cater to their schedules, their lifestyles, and particularly technology education. You know, these intense boot camps where you need to be on Red Bull every day. So it was a real joy to create an experience with women for women. And what we're sort of seeing and the people that are coming through these programs, it's amazing that we've been able to reach them because I think they would just go the rest of their careers or at least, you know, the next few years, just not being able to access the tech education in a way that suited their life. Yeah, it's been really, really enjoyable to first identify that gap in the market and then create something for them. Well, all power to you. Let me say on behalf of the sisterhood, I've just appointed myself a spokesperson. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. And I look forward to seeing what all of your students go on to achieve in the future. (laughs) Ali Watson, the stealth disruptor. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much, Leela. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for listening. Drive is a future women podcast made in partnership with Uber Eats. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode and we'd love it if you could leave a rating and review as it really helps us to reach more people. We'll see you next week.